Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. So now, if you've joined our community, you know that I always like to take an opportunity to formally introduce our guest co-host. It's so important for me, for people to understand their accolades, their credentials, their experience, and the lens in which they show up to our conversation. So today will be no different. I am delighted and honored to present Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold has over 26 years of experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion topics. She holds degrees from James Madison University, Eastern Mennonite University, and George Washington University. She recently retired from her senior leadership role as assistant provost for diversity and inclusion to expand her consultancy, Gold Enterprises, LLC, which provides DEI assessment, strategy, facilitation, education, and change management planning for organizations that strive to be fully inclusive. So you know what to do at this time, podcast community, find those emojis, find those reactions, find whatever sentiments that are coming up for you. And I want you to share them into the chat to help our guest co-host today feel the warmth of, of welcome and appreciation for being here with us. Dr. Shauna, it is such an honor. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you for saying yes to our invitation. We don't take that lightly. And I wanna give you a chance to greet this audience in your own way. And something that we often will ask our guest co-hosts to consider as they're sharing is what's something maybe we would not know about you from reading your bio or even maybe from reading the content in your LinkedIn profile. Help us to get to know you better. Welcome, Dr. Shauna. Thank you so much, Dr. Nika. I'm so appreciative to be here in your space. I have been a fan for a long time uh, as I've been watching on social media and connecting with other folks that uh, really had the same sentiments in mind, but also challenged my thinking as well. So I just felt always that we were these mutual uh, social media friends that we didn't even yes. know of, right? Exactly. Um, so I'm so appreciative of this invitation. Uh, but again, my name is Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. I go by she, her, hers pronouns. Really happy to be with you all today. I really understand how uh, this has been a pretty tense couple of weeks. I would suggest a tense few years, uh, but I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to just kind of think out loud with thought thought partners around these particular topics. Um, I come to this space with 26 years of experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion work uh, in such a way that it sometimes frazzles me when I hear people talk about these topics as if they are new. Many of them are not new, but they're in different iterations. And so I just want to acknowledge and appreciate those that have been in the trenches even before myself and Dr. Nika, I would suggest before either one of us were in the trenches, there were folks doing this work and we're carrying the torch on. Um, so I'm really appreciative to be in this space. Um, I come to you as a true educator, and I come from that space with deep humility because there are a few things to, to think about there. Dr. Nika, you hit the nail on the head in regards to things that folks wouldn't see or know from a website or a resume, a CV. Um, I found out a couple of years ago when I was visiting my grandmother, who's now 97, she'll be 98 in August, and I was visiting her and, you know, grandmothers often keep those uh, those thoughtful tokens and photos and so forth. And I found the photo of who I knew was my great grandfather, her father. And so I noticed him and he was in this group of people and they were his siblings. Those were six of 11 siblings at that time. And out of the four women in the picture, all four of them were educators. All four of them were teachers, whether they taught literally in one-room schoolhouses um, or, or taught in what were called normal schools at the time. Um, of course, many of them taught in their houses of worship and, and churches and communities and so forth. But I did not know that until a couple of years ago when I saw that photo and started to ask some questions. And it all started to make sense to me <laughs> how I found myself uh, in academia, moving beyond academia to continue to educate and teach. And I'm really proud of that, uh, partially because I never knew why I felt called to this work. But once mm -hmm. I saw this probably is in my DNA somewhere, it all yeah. makes sense to me. 
So that that history is very real for me now. Um, even when I go places to talk or, or speak or even just facilitate a conversation, the first assumption is that I've been an educator at some point in my life. And that's not because of, of just what I have done, but, but that lineage, of course. So absolutely, Dr. Michelle is in the blood. We just can't help ourselves, right? <laughs> um, and so I'm appreciative to come to you, this space with that lineage in mind. That is great. I'm so excited that you were able to to learn that information about your ancestry. I think that's critically important. You know, um, it helps us to connect some dots that sometimes we're wondering like, well, I wonder why is this so embedded in me? And then it's like, aha, that's why it's in my blood. <laughs> so I love that for you. It's actually inspiring me to go deeper into my ancestry. I've never taken one of those assessments. My husband has, and he's so thrilled about the results. And so I, you're, you're, you're inspiring me to probably go a little bit deeper in that. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your education background because you have retired from that space and now you're doing your consultancy work 100%. The reason that I want to talk about this is because first and foremost, right now, we are still grieving and processing the news of affirmative action reversal, right? And coming from a higher learning institution, I'm sure that that news um, really you know, created lots of emotions for you, right? And so I want to hear how you've been processing, but then I also want to understand how you foresee the, the transition from working in academia to now doing this work maybe for organizations or nonprofits, how that shift is also maybe um, shaping your lens and how you're showing up to this work. Yeah, so let me just share. Um, the pandemic was, uh, I say this gently, um, it was a good eye-opening process for me. Mm. And that was because I had a what 50 plus commute in one direction to my higher wow. ed position. Um, I'm not one of those folks that would get online and write about how my job sucked, my employer sucked, my supervisor sucked. I had the ideal situation. And in fact, um, they were doing a pay equity study right before I left and I got a bump up in pay and still walked out the door. Um, and it wasn't because of anything negative that was going on, but I realized that a lot of this work that we needed to do in the DEI space needed to be cross industries because I found that we were educating these wonderful students in higher ed spaces only to go out into uh, employee spaces that did not understand the verbiage, did not mm -hmm. understand their perspectives. What do you mean pronouns? Why do I need to use them? Whereas I have a rising seventh grader and a rising fourth grader that use pronouns all the time. And so I felt like we were doing a disservice in, yes, we're supporting students to be great, but at the same time, we're sending them to places that don't understand them. And they have not been educated around what they need to know, which then creates this intergenerational workplace fisticuffs that doesn't need to be one. And so given that, that's when I thought to myself, okay, this is going to be interesting retiring because... Yes, I love what I do and I have no complaints. And I know the assumption is you're leaving because of a grievance of some sort. When in fact, going back to your point at the top of our time together, it was better for my mental health not to take mm -hmm. that commute. I was feeling anxiety on the side of the road, just driving to work each day. And I said, I've got to take care of myself there. I have to buy myself more time to get more exercise in and all those other things that feed into our mental, physical, emotional health wanted to be there for my boys because it is a true, unique, and uh, sometimes folks do not covet having to raise Black men in this country. And so I have two young boys and they are the most important legacy that anyone could ever leave. So I needed to pour into that. Uh, side note, Dr. Nika, my sons love sports. And so as I watch professional athletes that are grown adults that still cry because parents, family, friends, et cetera, weren't there to support them when they were young boys, that disturbed me. And so that kind of fed into some of that piece. Um, and so now I see myself still working for the benefit of higher education, but knowing I'm working on the other end of, I'm preparing places for our college graduates to go to that are more similar to what we've educated them about, around, for, to do. And so I think that's really important. Um, and for me, I, I actually uh, retired myself and didn't look back because frankly, industries were thirsty for this work. They were ready yeah. for this work. And so as the SCOTUS hearings happened and so forth, 
I was grieving big, still, I would say grieving big time because we're at this conundrum of both, we're dealing with race and not dealing with anti-racism work that we need to do. We're dealing with admissions processes, which yes, on the face of it, some people would say, oh, we should not need race-based admissions because everyone should be seen in this particular way. That should be true. But does that really account for history that we're trying to make up for? Yes, um, I have a, a really good colleague of mine uh, who uh, I work with a lot and she identifies as a white woman. We both work arm in arm uh, constantly on work. And she says, Shauna, it's like, you know, we, you and I are running a marathon and I get like, you know, a two hour head start, but you're still expected to cross the finish line the same time I do. And I said, yeah, that's true. And on top of that, there are times where I can't even get on the course to run because of the rules, the policies, procedures that are just not considering our students. And so I'm still in grief, y'all. But I'll be clear, I'm still in grief around a lot of the hearings. I am right there with you. I am right there with you. I'm still grieving. And and honestly, um, one of my recent posts talked about the fact that being a practitioner in this space, I felt... I felt the pressure um, and I felt compelled to to react and respond in a public way. And and I finally had to say, look, just because we're practitioners, we're not immune to to grieving these types of, of, of news, this type of news. And quite honestly, when your space, your life work is is being uh, attacked. Um, that is heavy. That is a lot. And so I gave myself permission to kind of step away and not feel the need to kind of rush to respond in a certain way. People were kind of tagging me and saying, what are your thoughts? What are your, and I'm like, give me my space right now, because this is really impactful, you know? And so I, I share that broadly because I do believe, I'm not sure Dr. Sean, if you have experienced this, but I do believe that sometimes even as practitioners, we are seen as, um, inhuman and able to just immediately kind of process this news. This is our livelihood. This is a lot of what we are working tirelessly for day in and day out. And so um, I'm with you. I'm still grieving as well. I do appreciate that what has come to to surface in, in light of the affirmative action reversal is the question of legacy. You know, why was that not also a part of the original yes. conversation? But I'm glad that that's now being brought to the fore. I'm hoping that that will also continue to apply pressure to to the naysayers of affirmative action so they can really understand the totality of the impact of, of that decision. Um, yes. And yes. so, yeah, I, I am right there with you. I also love that your philosophy, as you were talking about your story from transitioning from higher learning to now doing this work, I love that your philosophy is that we aren't just preparing students to understand the craft, the trait, the knowledge to be able to do the work, but we need for them to also be able to navigate the workplace. And so if we don't bring some of that content that I know that you are really steeped in right now in your, your yes. consultancy to the higher learning environment, we are really causing our young people to miss opportunities to be able to thrive. Um, and I, so I appreciate that philosophy and I'm hoping that others are listening and that they are you know, finding ways to try to embed that same level of thinking into to high learning institutions. Yeah, we need them to be no, prepared, right? <laughs> right. Well, and you're reminding me of uh, last year, I did a workshop for a law firm, actually, that wanted to learn more about intergenerational workplaces, right? Yeah. And yeah. I had a, a woman that was in that space with us. There were about 50 people in the room. And there was a woman that was clearly very frustrated, extremely frustrated by, quote unquote, young people who don't want to work, right? Now, when I talked further with her. She was from my same generation. We're both generation Xers, if you will. And she talked about this young people not wanting to work. And then we talked about the differences in the generations and how our young people, especially those that are college age, I, I dare to say traditional college age, they go through higher education. And we've taught them about connecting their professional skill sets with their values, but then they show up to your law firm or whatever workplace and those values don't match. And right. so they're making a conscious decision not to work for or with you based on how they were raised and educated. 
And so when I talked a little bit further with her on the side of that conversation, she then started making the connections between her uh, nieces and nephews and so forth, which she has said to them, look, yeah, of course you need to make a living and be a functioning adult. And at the same time, if there are things that challenge your values, you need to consider that deeply. This is not just putting cogs and wheels, but you need to consider that. And and that exactly is the point. We can't say expect this type of workplace and then we don't work to create it for them because then we're just creating a mirage that's not there. And that's not fair to students. It's not fair. And it turns into rhetoric instead of being something that people are really committed to. And so we know rhetoric gets us nowhere. It gets us nowhere. So no, I love that. Really, really sage, really sage advice. I'm also, I also was impressed upon the fact that, you know, you acknowledge that your workplace, there was, it was great. There was nothing about it because we don't hear those stories as often these days. I think people are more forthcoming about the toxicity of maybe some of the organizations they find themselves in. But for you to say Mm -hmm. it was, it was the great environment. It was more about the commute. And I think that also deserves a little bit of airtime because, you know, there are a lot of people who are against the remote work. There are a lot of people who are fighting it. And what we're finding is that it really is causing people to make decisions about whether or not they want to be with certain organizations as an employee. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's really critical. So mm-hmm. Dr. Shauna, and by the way, Dr. Shauna is my SOAR. We're both members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So I'm going to probably fluctuate between Dr. Shauna and Shauna. Um, but what I want yes. to now talk about is that we hear language like there's a war on DEI. DEI is being attacked. And I think that we are feeling it. But something that I have become a bit more cognizant about is, is the vernacular, right? Language is so important. And so yes. I, while I feel it, I am starting to minimize using language like that because it then can become Mm. a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, right? But when you hear that type of language, what comes up for you? And do you think that what we're feeling and experiencing right now is here to stay? Or is it just kind of this phase right now that's going to work its way through? Oh, let me tell you, I I appreciate your your point on that, because I was looking, this was a couple of days ago, I was looking at a, a meme that was talking about the differences between violent language and nonviolent language. And yeah. I said, oh, how interesting is it that we're using violent language to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion against pressed groups that have experienced violence, yes. start to finish, to modern day. Um, and so I've done my best to start uh, pruning my language um, of <laughs> violence um, in that way. So that's one thing that I'm constantly working on. But here's the other thing, too. I was thinking about DEI from the analogy of a roller coaster, right? And that roller coaster is, it could be a roller coaster, it could be a stock market that goes up and down, that type of thing. We have, for those of us that have been doing this for a good long time, there have been times where we were the undercurrent working under the scenes that really nobody acknowledged or or at least thought about, right? So that was kind of the, the taking off point of the roller coaster where you're kind of going flat. Um, then we rose a bit because, oh, let's all panic because we all were sitting still long enough to notice that a Black man is murdered along with our Asian siblings, along with all of that globally. And so we were sitting still long enough to see what was going on and therefore there felt to be an imperative um, of we need to do something. And so folks did something. They hired Mm -hmm. chief diversity officers, they hired directors of diversity, they hired what have you, they put together a cursory DEI committee, et cetera, et cetera. And now exactly what I predicted when this happened, we are now what, three, almost four years down the road. And we are now seeing the difference between the wheat and the chaff in regards to who really was sold out on diversity and who was doing a performance. We are seeing it right now. When you are doing the real DEI work, it kind of reminds me of uh, when when people work out and they say, you know, you're you're not working out yet until it hurts. Well, baby, it's hurting now. And let's see if you're really working out. (laughs) Let's see if you're really sold out when, you know, when I consult, for example, I'm coaching with a university president or their cabinet, et cetera. And the first thoughts they have around certain things are, well, you know, this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. This is et cetera. And I, and I challenge them to say, which lawsuits are worth it? I'm not afraid of a lawsuit. I'm not afraid of attorneys. 
What I am concerned with is lack of change. And sometimes legally, there have to be some implications and there have to be a backbone to leaders. And so I wouldn't necessarily be afraid of illegalities. I would be afraid if I looked at your organization and I really could not see what you stand for and what's aligned in the sand as far as diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Oh, if I can't I see that clearly, we got work to do. We got work to do. That is it. That is so rich. Absolutely. And I think that there are a number of leaders who want to try to navigate this space without yeah. any type of risk or threat. And that is just not plausible, right? Because mm -hmm. it assumes mm -hmm. that everyone is going to think the same way, behave the same way. That's just not human nature. And so counting right. the cost, but being firm in one's belief and value set, no matter what kind of adversity comes their way, is so critical. Yes. So I love that you're amplifying yeah. that message to those that are falling under your guidance and your counsel. Yeah. So let's talk about the Crown Act. You know, July 3rd, we did recognize the, the Crown Act, and there's still a bit of work to go. I know that there's petitions that are going around right now, um, and people are being asked to sign it. There are about maybe 21 states, I believe, that have already adopted some type of legislation around mm -hmm. hair discrimination, um, race-based hair discrimination, but there's still a number of other states. And so I know that at the federal level, we're trying to get this passed. Um, so what conversations are you hearing or being a part of relevant to hair discrimination? And, and how has that maybe yes. personally kind of impacted you and your professional journey? Uh -huh. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so the, my, my ideal job that I retired from that we were just talking about before, this reminds me of the day I walked in for my interview. And I remember walking into this beautiful suite, getting ready for my interview. And there was someone sitting at the front reception desk and I couldn't tell who it was, but I saw the, the back of the monitor computer screen. And I saw this gorgeous Afro that came out from behind that <laughs> monitor. And I said to myself right then and there, here. <laughs> and so um, it, it ended up being this beautiful graduate student that uh, just, she's wonderful. Um, but that was my first thought around even hair in and of itself, because I do remember those days when I worked at a much more conservative, predominantly white institution. I've done nothing but work at predominantly white institutions until I retired myself. And I remember those days of asking my executive assistant to look at my calendar for the next few days so I could determine what hairstyle I wanted to wear for those days. So if I'm going into the president's office or the cabinet or talking to the provost, oh, that's a day when I had longer hair, bone straight, right? Whereas other days where I was primarily working with students, go for it, honey. And mm -hmm. so, you know, with that, just the mere fact that I was taking the emotional labor to think about that, is problematic. So fast forward now, uh, I, again, I worked in, at a higher ed institution that had no problem with any hairstyle, et cetera. The one I have now, I probably would have never worn 25, 26 years ago when I first started doing this work in particular. And I often think about the ridiculousness of connecting hair, natural hair, natural hairstyles, to the skill sets and abilities of human beings. Absolutely. I don't understand it. And so just this week, I was working with an organization. Let's let's take Crown Act and, and connect it to other things here. I was just having a conversation with one of the hardest, uh, hardest tasks that an organization can do when it comes to inclusivity, which connects to this. Writing an inclusive dress code, which oftentimes mm -hmm. includes hair, attire, mm -hmm. tattoos, all kinds of things going on, right? And so we had a really great dialogue about what does this mean? And usually it was about perception and not reality. So Absolutely. I'm sitting in a room of 25 people that say, I have no problem if you work with K through 12 kids and, and you have sleeve tattoos down every part of your body because you're a great teacher. You're exceptional at what you do. But what will other people think? Yeah. And I think that perception piece is the part that we need to disrupt um, because it's, again, as much as it always pains me to say this, we usually do DEI work, unfortunately, within the confines of white comfort. What is comfortable for white individuals? Of course. And once you start pushing outside of that box of white comfort, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's problematic. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not going to contort myself. And my organizations call me in to show them where they're contorting themselves so they don't have to in the future. And we've contorted ourselves, especially as Black women, we we have contorted ourselves for years in regards to hair. And so we have to now push back and say, we're not going to do it anymore. And not only are we not going to do it, but we're also going to literally demolish the systems that have allowed you to do this. We're not doing this anymore. And so I appreciate how it fits into a larger system. Um, and I also appreciate how I don't have to think about that anymore. Uh, and that, that's a privilege. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a privilege I had to grasp for myself that I know not everyone still feels that way. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it so resonated with me when you talked about having to look at your calendar and your schedule to identify, okay, I have vacation coming up. So I'm going to have vacation here. It may be some type of braids or whatever. But then right on the heels of that, I do have a meeting. So how do I get my hairdresser to make sure she get? It was maddening. <laughs> Exactly. It was maddening. So I, I, I too am so glad that that is behind me, and um, and I want that for everyone. And so I'm hoping yes. that this this legislation will pick up speed across other states that are sitting back right now or fence sitters and trying to decide: do we want to tackle yes. this or not? Because it, to your point, Dr. Shauna, it absolutely has nothing to do with the qualifications of a person, and so it's irrelevant and it should not be brought to the consideration set. Now, yeah, and I think to, to your yeah. point, Dr. Nika, I, I just want to interject too here that, you know, I think oftentimes, again, going back to that comfort piece, is that yeah. also we forget that for many of us, our hair tells an entire history of a people. Yeah. So when you're uncomfortable with cornrows, and we know that cornrows historically gave us the maps to underground railroads. I don't care how uncomfortable you are. Right. This is not, oh, right. I don't like it. This is my history. And I'm not willing yeah. to compromise on that. Now, I didn't know that when I first started in the DEI world. And obviously, we're human mm-hmm. beings, right? So we're growing as we're learning and yeah. teaching. Yeah. And so now that I know that, if my sons go somewhere and they're applying for a job and someone does not care for whatever hairstyle that they wear at the time, I've raised children that know that this is part of your heritage and you don't have Absolutely. to tolerate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that history into this conversation. You said something earlier too, as we were talking about this, you mentioned that there are some individuals who may, um, you know, frame this as I'm fine with it. It looks fine to me, but I'm worried about the perception of others. And I think that right. that is just a lousy cop out, to be honest with you, because I mean, right. if you're fine right. with it and you're part of the, the leadership of this organization, why not set the tone? Why not model that? Why be so concerned about the perceptions of others mm-hmm. instead of seeing that as a moment of education and a moment of, 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 of allyship and advocacy of the fact that it has nothing to do with the competency of an individual? And so when people say right. stuff like that, I pay attention to it because there's a subliminal message there that I think needs to be interrogated yes. and unpacked. Yes. So. Yeah. So I want to talk about um, just pulling from all of your experience in the DEI sector. Can you provide us with some of the lesser known skills and competencies and qualifications that from your vantage point, DEI professionals need to have to be successful? And specifically, I'm asking this question, Dr. Shauna, in recognition that this body of work is getting harder and harder because of all of the naysayers. So we have to bring our A game. And so maybe what what our A game was years ago is not necessarily the same now. So what are those lesser known skills that people need to really lean into and build up um, in order to be really effective in this space? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a great question because my my colleagues that I work with very closely know that I have this soapbox that I've been on it for years um, around how do we move folks from DEI programmers to DEI strategists? Mm-hmm. That is my mm-hmm. hobby horse for years. And, and the reason why I say that is because I remember um, at my previous institution, we were interviewing for a position that was a DEI position at the time. And we had a very deep and wide pool. And even in the best of that pool, those folks went directly into programming. I did this programming for Native American history. I did this programming for Kwanzaa. I did this programming for MLK, all of which we need. So nobody run down the street saying that Shauna doesn't want that. I want all of that, plus more. Um, And at the same time, I want folks that understand how that programming links to larger strategies, policies, and systems that function around us, right? So no, I don't want your Kwanzaa if we're still arguing about how Shauna can wear her hair to work tomorrow. I don't want that because all that's connected in a larger system, right? And so given that, going to your point around what skills are needed, 
Um, one big thing I think is desperately needed is, of course, systems thinking. We usually yeah. use this when it's connected to inventions or innovations. And I will say, especially for Black people, we are extremely strong when it comes to innovation <laughs> and inventions already. We have a we long are. history of that. So we are. Yeah. So why not apply that to our DEI work in particular? Um, my, my boys thought it was so cool that a black man created the super soaker because it's summer, you know, so that was cool for them. Um, but connecting it to uh, systems and innovation, that's one piece. Another piece that I think is really important, which any of my colleagues from the past know that Having strong dialogue facilitation skills is important, especially in the United States. Good. The reason being, folks don't want to engage in a conversation unless they can win the debate. And usually it's not about winning anything. It's about deeper understanding of individuals and understanding their stories so that mm -hmm. if there's not a point that needs to be agreed upon, we can at least have further understanding of how people got to where they are in the moment and how they make decisions. So dialogue is extremely important as a facilitator, someone who can lead and guide people through that process. And then the last piece, which I added to my arsenal during the pandemic, I think every DEI practitioner should run out the door right now and get some type of training or certification in change management, change management. Now, let me tell you my flaw and, and where this happened and then how I turned that corner had been doing DEI work for many, many years and, and beyond programming, had been doing policy work, procedure work, et cetera, uh, building out boards, so forth, nonprofit spaces, all that. And then what happened, <laughs> really interesting, um, is that a lot of clients got the DEI audit from my team, or they got the, the to-do list, if you will, as far as what we found were problems, Achilles heels in their organization. And then they're like, oh my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. And because of overwhelm, even for underrepresented leaders, they were still like, I need to let this report cool off for a minute because I don't even know where to begin, right? So that's when we get into the change management piece. And that's where we literally take an organization through a very strategic process of prioritizing what needs to be done and then helping the entire organization understand what's happening as the change is occurring. So I know everybody on this call has probably been in an environment where somebody sent out an email with, we're changing the policy to XYZ or we're moving here or whatever it is, no explanation, no conversation, no nothing. It was just informing you of that. That is the mm -hmm. exact opposite of change management. Right. Change management is involving people in the process along the way. And I think what's really important about the acceptance of change is that based on the science of change management, even when folks disagree with the decision and the outcome, they still feel committed to it if they were part of the process and they were informed yeah. as a process. Yes, 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 yes. You just said a mouthful. All of that is so rich. And I hope that this community has certainly um, captured all that you shared. I want to recap some of this. Okay. So again, we're talking about skills that DEI professionals need to take us into this new evolved way of doing work so yes. that it sticks, right? That endurance factor, systems thinking, innovation. Absolutely. And I love what you said about how sometimes we will define this work as, as a program, which is an activity with a start and an end date. We rather need to think about it from a strategy where we're thinking about systems, policies, procedure. I love that. We're definitely aligned on that. That's where the impact comes in. Secondly, dialogue facilitation. Those persuasion skills, which includes our ability to actively listen, our ability to have a questioning frame yes. of mind, um, all of that. I call that bridging the gap. That's what it is. We're bridging the gap yes. through those dialogues. And so I love that. And then thirdly, you said change management. We have to involve people. People don't mind change if you help them to understand what is the reason for the change. That's where the clarity piece comes in. We have to over communicate yes. around these big decisions where change is occurring. And, um, and so I love that. So I just wanted to make sure that this audience was, was capturing um, those three important um, skill sets that you brought to the conversation really rich. So I wanted to give our audience a heads up that momentarily I'm going to be shifting and I'm going to allow you an opportunity to ask your questions or to contribute whatever type of um, commentary that you would like to add to the, today's discussion. And if you're joining us um, in this Zoom community, you can do so by using the raise hand feature that will let me know that you're willing to be unmuted and to be spotlighted so that I can allow you to share um, directly. Or if you're just here again, 
observing in an auditory capacity and you want to share your question in the chat, we are paying attention to it and we will certainly bring those questions to the conversation. If you're joining us LinkedIn Live and you want to place your comments, questions into the comment section there, we have teammates here that are paying attention to um, what's happening in, in the community there and they will bring it into um, the Zoom room here. And so I'm going to go to my next question while you all percolate on perhaps what you want to, to ask of Dr. Shauna or what you want to contribute. I want to talk about um, Equity Summer School. This is an initiative that you have underway, and I want this community to know about it. So unpack that for us, Dr. Shauna. Yes. No, I'm glad you asked that question because let me tell you, I, I think uh, one of our sorors is on the call right now, Dr. Nika, who said, can't make Equity Summer School, but can you do something else in the fall? Um, but Equity Summer School, I realized, especially for my higher ed folks, but it really applies to any industry, that they are swamped during the fall and the spring, but summer loosens up a little bit. Yeah, you travel. Yeah, you have some time with your kids, et cetera. You have time with family members, loved ones, but it gives you a little bit of breathing room. And so what we decided to do was to package six weeks of 90-minute sessions to encapsulate exactly what you just asked me before, Dr. Anika, around what are those essential skills that you need in order yeah. to become that DEI strategist? And so those six weeks cover a lot in a very short time period with lots of resources in between. And so given that we go over, these are the basics of DEI, but here's the systems theory that goes along with it. These are the fundamentals of being a dialogue facilitator. A lot of folks, they participate in a dialogue, but actually when you're called upon to facilitate one, do you know what you're doing, right? Um, also knowing too around that change management piece, I went through an organization called ProSide, which was wonderful to get my, uh, my certification, but that was 40 hours for a full week pre-work, post-work, all to work. And I said, this is a lot. And it's a lot for people who are either not doing DEI full-time. And even if you are doing DEI full-time, it's hard to carve out a full week. And so we yeah. encapsulated that as well into six 90-minute sessions. And so we are literally going live uh, at this afternoon um, to make sure that folks have fall equity school on September 15th. Um, so in that way, folks still get to carve everything together into one large session, and then you get a, a 30 minute executive coaching session with me at the end of that time. And so we're super excited that the response was great and that people said, yeah, this is stuff that you're not going to find. I, I have three degrees and I'm working on a fourth and none of them teach any of this stuff. And that's yeah. the reason why I put it together. I love that. Thank you for your leadership. I, I have been in many conversations with other practitioners that have um, shared sentiments of we need some deeper training and learning to prepare yes. people who want to be into this space. And while I was grateful that so many individuals, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, um, they were they had this huge interest in, in be, you know, becoming DEI experts. But I also was worried about the fact that you just can't become an expert overnight, you know. And so I Absolutely love when I'm not. hearing about people that are really strong in this space, offering their insights, their knowledge to help train up others. And so how can people um, sign up and become aware? Can you, for the September, yeah. I understand that now the summer is underway, it is full, yeah. okay, that train, but there's another one coming. Another one is coming. That's right. We're going live this afternoon. So I'm in Eastern time and it's almost noon. So by yep. the time the majority of us log off of this call, um, the, the form and the links will be all ready to go. And so Perfect. I'm super excited uh, that I'm able to offer this opportunity to folks. It's on a Friday. Um, we're hoping that you can take that time to be with us. But exactly. My concern was you could not find this anywhere. And I'm thinking to myself, well, look, I'm really never going to be able to retire if there aren't people to replace me. So how can I replace yeah. myself in a way that I know that I feel comfortable passing the torch on to others? Because Dr. Nika, you and I, one day we, we want to sit down. We, we want to sit down. We, <laughs> we want to sit down, right? And so I'm trying to make it happen a little quicker, right? Yeah. Um, but I do want to move people from that programming space to that strategy space because what I don't want to see in another 20, 30, 40 years that we're working on things that I was working on my first few years. 
Yeah, no, I so appreciate that. This mm-hmm. is not just about execution. It really is about aligning strategic um, principles with yes. work so that it can create the change that we need. Um, I love the fact that Sheila from our community, she shared in the chat that bandwidth is also an issue in the nonprofit space as well. And so knowing that a lot of nonprofit professionals are dealing with um, you know, human services, human needs, I think that those yes. individuals also have to be in the consideration set of aligning with your um, your your equity school program. And so thank you for that thought, um, um, Sheila. Um, so I'm not seeing any hands raised right now. Maybe people are still thinking, but I still have more questions. So I'm gonna continue along. And this is yes. a question that um, stems from our earlier talk where you were sharing some of those skill sets that um, practitioners in this space certainly need to have. So related, but slightly different, are there any new practices or priorities that from your vantage point should be implemented widely in the DEI field? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, a a number of them that I want folks to think about is um, I'm very, how can I say, (laughs) I'm I'm a pot stirrer when it comes to um, DEI work and human resources as an industry. Every mm-hmm. position that I've been in, I've worked in, uh, I've worked parallel to HR or I've worked uh, collaboratively with HR. And every single time I've worked with human resources, it has certainly been from a compliance point of view rather yeah. than an aspirational point of view. And that's no disrespect to anyone. That's just simply to say that we have different histories in the development of both of our industries. And so right. it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you, you know, you go back home to the cookout and you have that cousin that you don't really like, but you need to play with them that day. It's like, that, that's how we are constantly when it comes to DEI and HR. It's that DEI folks feel limited when we have to work within the confines of human resources and human resources feel pushed outside of legalities by the DEI folks. And so we're always in this uh, tete-a-tete, if you will, between our yeah. two industries. So what I strongly suggest, and I think a lot of people have suggested this on any social media, is around, no, I'm a fan of not having DEI situated in human resource spaces. And at the same time, I need y'all to play nice. How about that? Yeah. And so (laughs) that's what I need. And and that's not to say that, oh, well, you know, you'll have a, a better CEO or you'll have a, another person that you can report to that's better. That that isn't that's irrelevant, actually. What's actually challenging is we don't know each other's history and how we got here. This kind of goes back to my dialogue points. We don't know each other's history until we study it. I've done a lot of study in HR and how we got here. And a lot of where we got uh, where we got a lot of our policies and, and traditions and so forth in HR have come from getting a lot of dings legally in response to, right? Where in DEI, we are not in response to. We are attempting to be proactive an ideal in this space. And that's probably the reason why we feel like we're stifling each other. And I don't want to feel that way. I want to work well with my HR colleagues, but also know that we need to think very strategically, which is why if there are any CEOs here or any presidents, whoever you are, if you are kind of the top of your org chart, think about how you plan to elevate DEI as a profession. That's one piece. The second piece is, which I feel like I'm repetitive here, but a second point, DEI is a profession. It is not Mm -hmm. an appendage. It's not, oh, this is a good add-on for someone else to do. Um, I'm working with an organization right now that had someone in an HR role, and this person was elevated to a title that's similar to a CDO position, and there was only one bullet point of 20 that had anything to do with DEI. Mm-hmm. one bullet point out of several job functions that tells me that there's a gross misunderstanding of what DEI is and how it's it's not the same as EEOC it's not the same as human resources it is a different and professional function period and so as we're all working in the body I kind of feel like you know sometimes we call the the, the podiatrist to come in and be the cardiologist no we all have our skill sets we need to work on the part of the body that we need to be in. And so that's where um, I'm constantly pushing this uphill battle of, no, you cannot just call the resident Black girl, Black man, Latina, LGBT person to come in and do this work because 
that's not what they were hired for, number one. And number two, this is a profession. I don't walk into the hospital and say, I want to perform heart surgery on folks, even though I care about their heart deeply. So why mm-hmm. would I just walk in and, and carte blanche say, oh, I can do this. This is a profession. This is a profession. And we get ourselves in trouble. And so then what happens, Dr. Nika, and I, I'm not going to put all of our business out there, but what I will say is that there have been many times that organizations called upon someone who had those lived identities that were underrepresented in the organization, and they called upon them to do the work that they weren't equipped to do. I feel mm-hmm. bad for them. And then we get called to come unravel the fray. Yeah, which is why there's so much talk right now of having to defend this work because there's a lot of criticism uh, that is effective. Well, if you have people that aren't equipped to do the work that's leading the work, then it's not going to be effective. So I love everything that you just said. And what I do appreciate, and I want to go on record too, kind of sharing similar sentiments, is that this is not to amplify tension points between HR professionals and DEI practitioners. I mean, to your point, there is great value in in being strategic alliances and working together, but it does live on own and it should. And so, you know, all the for all the reasons you named, it's not just about compliance and it's not just about, you know, HR function. I mean, yes, human capital is the most important asset organizations have. But you know, this work of DEI is very horizontal. It's not vertical, which means it extends yes. to every department, purchasing, marketing, every department. And so I am with you and I I am glad that we have some practitioners who aren't afraid to keep naming that and amplifying that because we did it. I love when you said this is not an appendage. It is not extracurricular. It's not a committee because while I do believe in the formation of strategic DEI councils and making sure those councils are well equipped to be a resource, a lot of times organizations will try to address their DEI needs strictly with a volunteer committee. And that can't be your be-all, end-all for realizing DEI work, DEI input, mm-hmm. DEI output, DEI um, success stories. And so, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. somebody put into the chat, equipped and compensated. Yes, let's not forget the compensated piece. This is not extracurricular work. It's work to drive your business. So let's make sure that whatever value you're adding to those individuals is commiserate with what they're sacrificing. Absolutely. Oh. Soapbox. Okay, we can move on. We can move on because we have like six more minutes. I'm still not seeing any hands raised, but lots of activity happening in the chat. So I'm just going to keep rolling with my next question. I want to try to get in um, at least maybe one or two more with the time we have left. Um, So we've talked a lot about how policies are really important to move this work forward, right? Yes. And what we do know is that oftentimes when we try to institute policies to help create um, greater centering around marginalized communities in the workplace, we are met with resistance. And so, Dr. Shauna, with your counsel and your coaching approach, I would imagine that you have come against individuals that you have been working with that have really wanted to institute policy and they have been met with resistance. How do you coach them through that? What are some of the best practices you share to help them overcome that? Yeah, great question. So it's funny that you even bring that up because I remember going through my change management training and one of the um, one of the most important points, there's this acronym called ADCAR, where you think about awareness that there needs to be a change, the desire to make the change, knowledge to do it, ability to do it. So you're moving boulders out the way and then reinforcement, making sure that people can keep the changes in place. Right. And what I always found interesting, Dr. Sean, I don't want to go too fast on that. Give those to us again. You said, oh, yes. Okay. So a is awareness. People need to be aware of the change that needs to happen. Desire. We want people to desire the change we want them to want it. Knowledge. Do they know what they need to know to make the change? There's people that walk around and say, I know something needs to change, but how to do it, I don't know. Knowledge. Ability. Now they want to do it. They have the knowledge to do it, but it's too many roadblocks in the way. We need to get these boulders out of the way so we can let them go with the knowledge they have. And then once the change happens, how do we reinforce it to make sure we don't go back to what we used to be, right? Okay. So that's this whole ad car change model, right? So to your question, The resistance piece usually happens around the D and the K, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was going through my my change management training. Now, mind you, I'm in a room where it's a lot of people from various industries. We have two individuals, one one white male, one white female that are facilitating this conversation. And they're thinking 
change as in changing from one accounting system to a new accounting yeah. system. Yeah. Thinking, no, change racism to anti-racism. I'm, I'm thinking bigger, right? Okay, I'm in macro yeah. level yeah. here. Um, yeah. So obviously we're, we're already not starting on the same page, but I asked that very question, Nika, around what do you do when folks never have the desire? They yeah. never have it. I don't care how much information they have. Th there will be denial at the A. <laughs> there will be denial that it even needs to happen, right? And so here's what I suggest with that, with folks that are resistors. Um, th the first thing that I would say is if you're going to work in this space, assume resistors. Oh, There's yeah. some individuals that I work with, they walk into a room and they think, well, if I, if I am convincing enough and if I provide enough data, they'll come over here. Yeah. No. I have yeah. people that that actually bait you for the information so that they can divert you from doing the work. So we're not going to oh, do that. So um, so there are going to be people that never desire. So a few things I would say, first of all, <laughs> I, I don't want this to sound like it's, uh, you know, childlike per se, but you need to contain them. Right. So. <laughs> If there are people, because remember, I've worked in higher ed environments. So let's talk about those folks that have tenure that aren't going anywhere. They're going to die at their desk and you're trying to get a policy through, right? So contain them. How can we make sure that they don't affect what you're trying to change or affect it less, right? So maybe they don't need to sit on that committee and they need to sit on another committee, okay? Mm -hmm. But contain them. Secondly, I am very okay with confrontation good confrontation. Mm -hmm. Usually that means from a dialogue perspective of, I want to get down to those five whys, you know, the, the whys of the dissent, the whys yeah. of, I don't want this to happen. Um, and then the last piece that I would say, and that's for when you can, and this sounds very harsh, there are some folks that literally need to be removed. Absolutely. They need to be, and I'm not saying removed from the whole organization. Sometimes they do need to be removed from the whole organization. Sometimes they need to be moved into different spaces. So when yeah. I have that tenured faculty member that needs to be moved into another department so I can get this work done, so be it, right? And so just thinking about as you walk in, and that, again, is part of the change management plan when you draft out a plan is be ready before the resistors pop up. You need your action yeah. plan before they emerge because sometimes you're not going to see them as quickly as you think, and you need yeah. to be on the ready, Johnny on the spot, to respond. So that's what I, I would that. suggest there. That is so good. One of the questions I often ask clients when we're working with them, especially in the readiness space to ensure that they are ready is, you know, we ask questions like, what would derail this work or what would be a barrier? Because I want Oof. you to know the hurdles. You have to identify Oof. them in the beginning. And that's similar to what you're talking about. Identify even the resistors. Um, right. And we that's also right. give right. ourselves permission to value the fact that sometimes while maybe someone's heart and mind won't change, if we can at least get their behavior to align with the policies, then to win in and too, right? So That's this is it. so good. And I told you we were going to get to the end and we were going to find that we needed more time. And that's where we are right now. But unfortunately, we don't have more time, at least not today. But I certainly want to make sure that I can bring you back. I love the boldness um, that you have brought to this conversation around leadership having that backbone. You've, you've mentioned and alluded to that several times today. And so that's definitely resonating with me. Thank you, Dr. Sean. I want to give you the last like 60 seconds to close this out in whatever way that feels comfortable for you. And so take it away. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to say really briefly, thank you for being here, number one. Number two, I realize there's been a lot of things that have happened, especially with SCOTUS in the last week that can be disconcerting. But I encourage you to hold on and stay in the fight. You know, it's kind of like that meme where you, you tie a knot and hold on, right? And that's exactly what we're going to do. And the last piece I would say is, Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Go to your doctor. Go to your mental health professional. Take that walk when it gets heavy because we need you in the fight. And if you're not healthy enough to be in the fight, then we're we're short on folks, right? So we need you there. So I encourage you to stay in there. Hang in there. Nika and I are trying to retire, but we want to retire on a good note, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank we you. hope to see you again next Friday. And if this was a uh, content that you found valuable, be sure to share out the replay or invite others to check out the podcast. Thank you all so much. Take care.